Good morning, everybody, and welcome. My name is Nick Davies, and I'm a Programme Director at the Institute for Government Covering Public Services. On behalf of the Institute and the Health Foundation, who have kindly partnered with us on this event, thank you very much for joining us for what should be a fascinating discussion on what the new Prime Minister should prioritise on the NHS and social care. The new government is not even a month old, but has already made a number of big decisions affecting the health and care system. Two weeks ago, it published our plan for patients, which features a range of measures, including an expectation that uh, patients will be able to secure a GP appointment within two weeks uh, and a £500 million adult social care discharge fund. There have also been reports that the long-planned health disparities white paper is to be scrapped uh, and perhaps most consequentially of all, the government has confirmed that it will stick to the 2021 spending review settlement with public services required to meet the cost of higher inflation and pay settlements from existing budgets. Uh, and it hadn't exactly been a quiet period for the NHS under the Johnson government. It embarked on a programme of hospital upgrades, introduced an ambitious elective recovery plan and passed the Health and Social Care Act, uh, which made a number of big changes to the structure of the NHS. Uh, and of course, these services also had to contend with COVID. Today, in light of the major issues facing the NHS and social care, many of which predated the pandemic, we will be discussing how our plan for patients and other <coughs> government reforms to the NHS will meet current and future challenges, what other actions might be needed, uh, and how the Trust Government will meet the public's priorities for the NHS. Uh, to discuss these issues and more, I'm delighted to be joined shortly uh, by Marco Longhi, who I'm told uh, is on the way, uh, by Anita Charlesworth, the Chief Economist uh, at the Health Foundation, uh, and by Danny Mortimer, the Deputy Chief Executive of NHS Confederation. I'm going to ask each of the panellists to make some opening remarks and I will follow up with some questions to the panellists uh, before opening up to questions from the audience. Uh, we will be live tweeting the event from the at IFG <coughs> events account uh, and using the hashtags uh, IFGCONS22 uh, and hashtag CPC22 uh, and definitely feel free to tweet along while you're watching uh, as well. Uh, and I should also say at this point that this uh, event is on the record, uh, so do bear that in mind um, when asking questions uh, a little later. Right, without much further ado, I'm going to come over to Anita to make some initial <coughs> opening remarks. Yes, uh, thank you, everybody, and uh, great to see so many uh, people here. Um, is it the, the government has the um, unenviable task of trying to balance the very, very urgent with the very, very important. So the very, very urgent is how on earth we get through this winter, you know, uh, given the pressures that already exist on the ser service with seven million people um, and rising, uh, waiting for um, elective uh, care, but also huge pressures on the emergency system with 28,000 people uh, waiting more than, 28, more than 12 hours in an A&E for a hospital bed in August uh, uh, alone. Um, uh, uh, unprecedented uh, uh, in my uh, career of, uh, of, of 30 years, uh, I think. Um, and a primary care system which is um, really struggling uh, to, to ensure that patients have access, all of which is creating a, um, a huge pressure in the workforce on both workload, but also an immense feeling for people that they um, cannot do the, deliver the high quality care that they became a healthcare professional to, to, to provide. And, um, and a real worry, we've seen uh, uh, the vacancy rate jump back up, jump back, jump back up sharply <clears throat> uh, over the summer, uh, summer, a real worry that there'll be an exit of workforce in a context of an economy um, which has generally labour market shortages and a lot of employment opportunities for highly skilled people. Um, <clears throat> as a result of that, you know, the political pressure is intense and polling that we recently 
uh, uh, commissioned found that only one in 10 people think the government has the right policies on, on the NHS, almost certainly a reflection <clears throat> of not just what they see in the news, but with those sorts of numbers, what they're personally experiencing in their family and, uh, and friends. Those issues obviously very significantly influenced by coming out of a pandemic, which was absolutely uh, uh, unprecedented and pandemic not being fully over with, with rising numbers um, in hospital with COVID um, at the moment. But they reflect underlying issues, um, which is the serious unfinished business of policy. And for those of you who were at Policy Exchange um, event yesterday, the analysis there was absolutely spot on. Actually, the big tectonic plates of policy have been very consistent for very many decades. Yeah? We need more workforce. We need to grow our own workforce. We need to train um, our, 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 our own people. We need to recruit and retain uh, better. <clears throat> we need more capacity in our system. We need to get the mix of hospital and, um, <clears throat> and community-based care um, right. It's out of kilter at the moment and out of kilter best practice uh, globally. We need to fix social care. And part of that, obviously, is protecting people from catastrophic costs, which is the cap. But a big part of it, actually, is the core publicly funded social care system, <coughs> which is uh, a problem <coughs> generally and is adding to the NHS issues with very many people at the moment um, who don't need hospital care but need care, unable to, to leave hospital. And we need to address the fact that... Um, the improvements in life expectancy and in quality of life that we took for granted as an inevitable gain decade after decade, <clears throat> which are in, in, in essence one of the main marks of a successful society, that our children live for longer, they live healthier, and they are able to be more prosperous and do more than we did in our lives. That's what most of us aim for for our children and grandchildren. That has stalled since 2011. You know, in one sense, as a society, we are failing to translate, a, you know, <clears throat> spending and wider policies on, um, on health into improvements in life expectancy. So I think the balance for this government <clears throat> is to really be laser-like focused on doing all that they can to help us to get through the winter. <clears throat> the problems in the NHS and social care will not be fixed quickly. There is no magic bullet, no, no, no uh, one thing that fixes it. <clears throat> the public know there are real concerns. It is, um, obviously, cost of living is uppermost on people's minds at the moment. <clears throat> but <clears throat> it is and always has been a really important question for people. They believe in the NHS model, but they want an effective health and care system <clears throat> that delivers for them as patients, that delivers for the people they know who are staff, and delivers for them as taxpayers. And I think without a credible long-term answer to how the government will actually move those big tectonic plates, it's very difficult to see how the government turns around that one in 10 figure on people who think that the government has an effective policy program for the NHS. Anita, thank you very much. Uh, I'm going to come next to uh, Danny Mortimer to make some opening remarks before coming to Marco Long to make some opening remarks at the end. Danny. Great, thanks, Nick. <clears throat> um, the NHS Confederation is an organisation that represents um, health leaders across England, Wales and, and Northern Ireland, and it covers the whole uh, waterfront of people who provide and commission uh, healthcare, both statutory and non-statutory. Um, I would reinforce, we would reinforce in particular um, Anita's points about where we find ourselves now and in the immediate term. And I think the first need for the government is to be truly honest with the public about the scale of the challenge that we will face this winter. The NHS will open at least a minimum of 7,000 extra beds or equivalent of beds, and we'll have to find a way of staffing those beds. Um, uh, and it will have to make some, frankly, some compromises and difficult choices in terms of how it does that. But that's the only way that it can cope with the demand that we expect to have from a very difficult uh, winter period, whether that's through flu or flu and uh, a resurgent um, pan COVID uh, experience. Real pressures there, but actually our politicians need to be honest about what's required there. And exhorting the NHS to do better isn't enough. We need to be clear about the difficulties that people are going to face, unfortunately, and that our staff are going to face. I think the other issues then absolutely are about the longer term, as Anita's highlighted. There is a profound gap um, where there should be a workforce plan. 
there hasn't been a clear workforce plan with numbers in it uh, in the English NHS for the last 15 years. That doesn't bear comparison with the other nations in the United Kingdom, where in Scotland, for example, the government finds it easy to be clear about where its priorities are in terms of investment in the workforce. But successive governments um, have struggled to do that and frankly have struggled to convince the Treasury that investing in the workforce would prevent um, us incurring premium costs through use of things like agency uh, and locums, uh, would help efficiency uh, and would make us far less reliant on um, international recruitment than we, we have been in this last five years in particular. As Anita rightly said, we need a clear plan for social care. Too often, we in the NHS uh, define uh, success for governments uh, in terms of social care, in terms of our own narrow perspective. Will it help, uh, will it help us uh, transfer care away from hospitals more quickly? That's an insufficient definition of what's required for social care. It's about the health and well-being of our population, particularly our elders, but also adults with learning disabilities, also young people. And again, successive governments of any and all colours and combinations thereof have failed to engage with the challenge of social care and failed to have a very honest conversation with the public about what's required to have a social care system that will be respectful of them and particularly their elders. Um, we do need a focus on our communities. Um, the uh, commitment over this last year to have a white paper that focused on health disparities was a really essential part of government policy. Uh, the government have to find a way uh, to take that forward. Um, Anita illustrated that very clearly in terms of the kind of stasis we're seeing now in terms of outcomes and life expectancy for people. But we also know, history tells us, that in periods where there's an enormous pressure on um, the quality of people's lives, through cost of living, through recession, actually, particularly the poorest, the most vulnerable, suffer. And we have to have policies that protect people uh, in the immediate term, but also invest for the longer term in our communities. And that's not just about policy in the health service, it's about uh, things that affect people's lifestyle choices, like obesity, and it's also about the whole raft of other public services that wrap around our communities. It's about education, it's about housing, it's about investment, and yes, it's about growth as well. And then finally, there are a set of financial challenges that need to be addressed for the longer term. Um, the impact of inflation upon um, public services is profound. It does mean that probably between five and ten billion pounds is shaved off uh, the investment um, that Theresa May made while she was Prime Minister and Boris Johnson then made when he was Prime Minister. And it also means that we continue to struggle uh, to invest in capital. Our infrastructure, our technology is falling far behind what it is our patients deserve and actually it's causing inefficiencies. It's causing us um, to struggle to find ways to improve access for our, for our patients. Thank you, Nick. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Danny. I'm going to come now to our final speaker, Marco. Uh, thank you very much, and apologies for the um, late arrival. I was actually uh, doing the same thing somewhere else, and the end time and this start time coincided, and it was sort of the other side of the, uh, of, of the arena. Um, a very brief word about myself. I'm a fairly recent addition to the Health and Social Care uh, Select Committee, which, as you know, is the body within Parliament that uh, looks to hold uh, government to account over its health and social care policies and deliverables. Uh, prior to that, um, I, uh, I've, I have a very eclectic background, I have to tell you. Um, I have worked as a management consultant uh, in the NHS when we used to have strategic health authorities. Actually, I recognise some of the faces in this room, so there might be a bit of repetition going ahead. <laughs> so I do apologise uh, for that. Um, and um, uh, I've also been in local government for some 20 years, a uh, huge fan of uh, social care in particular. Uh, so I've chaired health and wellbeing boards and health scrutiny committees and seen some of the things uh, at the coalface. So I'm a huge, huge fan of the direction of travel we're moving in in terms of uh, integrated um, care systems. Um, I... Um, I, I, I want to sort of slightly contextualise um, some of the remarks perhaps I might make later. So I will always be supportive and recognising that both health and social care require and will continue to require greater amounts of funding in the future. As we live longer, 
with comorbidities, medical technologies become more expensive, and there will be more of us uh, about. And that's a good thing, but it also means that there are consequences on budgets and how we might decide to, um, to fund what we do. Um, speaking specifically about social care, though, uh, the reason why I'm perhaps a louder voice for social care is because us in this room and most certainly the people out there will not have the perception and the sense that at some point in time they are going to need social care in future. But pretty much 100% will know that they will need NHS-type intervention. And that has a massive impact because, think about it, it's the people that help inform politicians' priorities and how that filters through. So you will see a huge privatization coming out of politicians to always want to be seen to be the rock of the NHS and the savior of the NHS and all of these sorts of slogans that you've seen about. Another point of context. Uh, Tony Blair, when he came to government, he quite rightly decided to invest money in the NHS for the reasons I've just explained. And uh, at the time, I do believe he did make a uh, mistake, which was in, before uh, investing heavily in the NHS, which he did, he didn't reform it first. So now what's actually happened is, is we've thrown in gargantuan amounts of money at this organization, which we all value and want, and want to be successful in the future, but it's actually grown in a way that now, if you try and reform, is, is a much bigger uh, a bigger job of work to try and, 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 and bring about. And reform, it definitely needs. So when he came to power, Tony Blair, we were spending as a nation 33,000 million pounds on the NHS. Today, we spend 192,000 million pounds 192 billion pounds. That is the size of the whole economy of Portugal. That is the size of many small countries' GDPs put together. I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm saying that an organization of that size, with that amount of money being spent on it, it is right that at some point we look at it and ask the question, could we be doing things differently and better? We talk about shortages of staff. How do we square the circle when we say we are short of staff? And yes, we are frontline staff, ladies and gentlemen. We are short of. But the NHS is also the largest employer in Europe, we employ 1.3 million people. Why are we short of staff? I can't square that circle. I mean, I'm sure there'll be lots of people in this room who will have different opinions about that, and I can't say I have an immediate solution for it. But I will say I will be a politician who will be absolutely the champion of integrated care, social care, and frontline care, but there is an enormous amount of back office, NHS uh, organization there, and chief executives of various entities and all of the management structures below it, that I'm not quite certain about the value added to the front line. And those questions need to be answered because it's in the interests of patients and of the taxpayer, but principally patients, that we do so. Uh, some other points. I've made some notes here. I think capital investment has been mentioned. Absolutely yes. This is something that we uh, uh, must look at and will be uh, certainly on my list of uh, priorities because uh, they are clearly a significant... Um, so the, the capital departmental expenditure limits are an obstacle to um, uh, investment and improving uh, efficiency. Uh, I've mentioned social care, and I mean clearly parity and uh, of esteem between social <coughs> care and NHS staff is clearly a must. But again, 
Um, we, all of us, each and every one of us as individuals need to be talking about social care in a different way to the way that we are accustomed. I, I in the previous session, made a comparison between um, engineers. I was started out my life as a civil engineer. I hadn't done my homework. I, I hadn't thought about, well, which engineers get best paid and, and are most highly regarded. So I, I did civil engineering. And my starting salary was £9,000. But my friend down the Hall of Residence corridor did mechanical engineering, and his starting salary was £14,000. My friends and family who are from Italy, because as you'll know from my name, I'm half Italian, if you talk about engineers in Italy, they are regarded as solicitors with the same value as lawyers, as consultants in the NHS almost. That's how they regard it. And it, it's a societal thing about how we look at, if you like, branding people almost. And the solution comes from us. The solution will not be dictated by government. The government won't suddenly work, wake up and say, we must impose on society a different view of civil engineers in this world. And it's going to be much more... In the same way, there is no legislative framework in which you impose on society a different view of care workers. That won't work. What government can do is facilitate that. What government can do is talk about it more. What government can do is be a change agent and, yes, talk about salaries and perhaps even find ways of improving pay. But until each and every one of us starts looking at those carers, the unpaid carers, my goodness, and valuing these people for what they really do, caring for our most vulnerable people in society, we will be in trouble, ladies and gentlemen. And, and, and I have to tell you, in, I, I'm a well-traveled person, and society looks at vulnerable people here in a different way to how society families look at their loved ones in older age. I, I, as you can tell, I could carry on speaking for a very long time about this. I'm very passionate about the topic, uh, but I think it's best if I pause, otherwise I'll be told to shut up. <laughs> Thank you. There were quite a few points there about kind of how you get best bang for your buck. Uh, so you rightly made the point about how much the NHS budget has increased, and, and you made the point that actually that hasn't converted into a big improvement in life expectancy in mm -hmm. recent years. Um, Mark, I wanted to come to you first. There was obviously a, a high-profile piece by your uh, colleague David Davis on Sunday talking about the, an insurance system being the only way to save the NHS. D do you agree that that's a way that we could better convert the money we spend on our health system into, into outcomes? Um, first and foremost, I must say that if I express a view here, it is my personal view. Uh, and, and it will be that of uh, as an individual and not that of sort of I, I do not have a government role in that respect and I have to be absolutely clear about that what I would be saying is that the the NHS will never have enough money it won't and what I think we should be doing is always challenging ourselves about how we might go about uh, looking at different models of care. So I don't want to speak necessarily about NHS models or defined models of care, but we do have to be more open-minded <coughs> while still offering free at the point of need care, because I think that's a very important principle that we should always keep. But what we offer and how we offer it and how, as taxpayers, we are prepared to fund that. Because, And, and I have to say... Um, the conversation always becomes one of how we fund, ultimately, the NHS. That is a top-down medical approach. I want us to be talking about how we fund well-being, health and well-being, about how we look at how we look at community <coughs> solutions on our journey towards our end of life. Yeah, uh, I mean, I, th I think two things to think about in relation to the debate about um, social insurance. <clears throat> and, and, and I think things which, I think in particular the Conservative Party, given its focus on economic growth, needs to think about a lot in relation to this uh, debate. 
So for economic growth, we know that one of the most important things for economic growth is that we have as many people as possible working with as good a work incentives to work and generate wealth as possible. Yeah? So all economies over the long term, yeah, you thrive on the back of having high rates of employment and high productivity and employment and people incentivised to do that. Now, when we look across Europe, m many countries have social insurance models and they deliver high-quality health care <coughs> um, to very many people. So social insurance is not in itself a bad thing. <coughs> the problem is many of those countries, France, Germany and others, are worried because what social insurance does is ineffectively it taxes employment. Yeah? <coughs> so rather than you spreading the cost of your NHS and your healthcare system and every advanced economy with an ageing population is facing the huge challenge that health service bills go up yeah, <clears throat> and go up by more than inflation and more than growth. This is not a unique UK thing. Mm. Uh, but what happens there is with an ageing population is what economists call the employment wedge. If you like, the extra cost of employing somebody goes up and the return to the individual from being employment goes down. So if, 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 the conservative, if the UK problem is economic growth, and that's not contested, I think, the UK problem is economic growth, my question around social insurance is how does moving to social insurance help with economic growth? Other countries which have the same sort of profile that we do are, are, are trying to work out how to shift the costs away from employment. You know, one of the, the UK's successes over recent years has been to have high employment and not to, to <coughs> suffer what many continental European countries ha have suffered from. Where yes, yes, they've had, you know, their economies are successful in very many ways, but they have high rates of unemployment. Yeah? They have a problem with work incentives. <coughs> why, why would we go there? <coughs> and what does it change? What do we get for it? The OECD, over a decade ago, did an excellent piece of work looking across healthcare systems at whether or not there was a way of running healthcare systems, social insurance, tax-funded, public-private, that was inherently more efficient than another one. Because we all want the most efficient health service system we can get. Everyone wants that. They found there was no one model that was inherently more efficient. What mattered was how well you ran the system that you got. And the UK, our system was not as efficient as it could be. <clears throat> and a lot of those issues were because we were short-termist. Because what we failed to do was to invest in the long-term enablers of efficiency. So we have repeatedly cut capital investment. There is a huge amount of talk about the power that digital, that new technology could play to, to unlock efficiency. <clears throat> and yet, if you've been to any event through this conference with doctors and nurses and pharmacists there, you know, pharmacists cannot see the medical record. <clears throat> so they're having to refer the patient back to the doctor for the most basic thing, you know, which is bad for the patient, bad for the workforce, bad for the taxpayer. <clears throat> so, there, so cutting capital has led our system to be systemically inefficient. Cutting the workforce training budget, so we had ballooning agency bills, making us be systemically less efficient. Cutting public health, which public health interventions, which are three or four times more productive than treatment services, making our system systemically less efficient. So let's really go for an efficient health service and let's go for economic growth, but do it in the intelligent way. Dan, I wanted to pick up with you some of the, the workforce points that no. have been um, raised. So, as you said, the, kind of the immediate problem is we're going to need 7,000 more beds and the people to staff them. Generally, and kind of historically pre-pandemic, the NHS has run pretty lean. We've had not many beds or staff per capita compared to other countries. Is that something you think needs to change? Or is it, as others have said, it's about making better use of the workforce that we currently have through kind of enablers to make them more productive? It's all of the above. <clears throat> And again, to, to reinforce the, the context um, here, yes, the NHS employs a lot of people. The majority of those people, and this bears comparison with any system in the world, the majority of those people are closer to patient care than people like, like me and the career that I've, I've enjoyed. The biggest single group of employees in the NHS are the 350,000 colleagues that work in nursing and midwifery roles. We employ 150,000 doctors. We employ similar you know, large figures of allied health professions and we employ staff who support them 
to provide care uh, for patients. What we haven't done is invest in those roles with any sense of priority. The government has had priorities. We've seen some expansion of medical school places. Uh, we've seen uh, a commitment to recruit uh, and retain more nurses. That's largely a, been a function then of international recruitment, not necessarily investment in domestic education. But we have to be able to, Anita captures it really well, we have to be able to see this as, in, as investment. Um, as I understand um, uh, the, the approach that's going to be taken in terms of um, government policy in the coming months, it's about trying to help businesses invest. Well, the same is true for public services. If you don't uh, invest in education of your workforce, you become dependent on paying premium agency rates uh, rather than directly employing people. If you don't invest in high quality in working environments, if you don't invest in giving people technology, their work becomes more inefficient. If you don't invest in a social care system, you find the NHS um, having to, frankly, act as a safety net because our colleagues in social care um, can't cope with what's being put through. In the immediate term, the NHS will have to find ways, as it did during the pandemic, to create extra capacity and to staff that in as safe a way as it can possibly do. Some of that will be about paying premiums that it would rather not pay. Some of that will be about trying to accelerate um, international recruits getting into the, into the workplace and the government uh, are being really supportive in both healthcare and social care about that. Um, and some of that will also, frankly, be about altering some of our policies so that we just have to spread people that bit more to be able to care for the people that we need to care for. And in the longer term, we need to build capacity and capability in the community services that we have, primary care especially, but also in other services, so that actually we're less reliant on creating beds. We've got more ability to care for people in their own homes. We've got more ability to give people, um, when they have a moment of crisis, to give them care and to allow them to return to their own home, whether that's their house or somewhere that, that has more support from social care. But at the moment, we struggle to do any of those things well. And again, this, this is a a 15-year story of a lack of investment, of a lack of a long-term plan. The action that's been taken um, has been short-term or it's been focused in one area and hasn't stood back and thought about where the, where the priorities are as a whole. Thank you. I think I could probably keep asking questions for the rest of the session, but I suspect others have quite a few questions as well. So I'm going to open it up to the audience. A reminder uh, that we are on the record. Uh, please wait for the mic to come to you. Um, there's a roving mic around. Um, when you get it, please say where you're from. Uh, keep your questions short, please, and ensure that they are, in fact, questions and not statements. Um, I'm going to come to the two ladies at the front here first, and then this gentleman here. I'm Bernie Muir. Oh, am I? I'm Bernie Muir, um, Chair of the Adults and Health Select Committee at Surrey County Council. Um, I'm particularly interested in the approach to get discharging people into social care. Mm -hmm. I think the money needs to go there because then your beds get emptied, the ambulance services aren't backing up and they can do their job. Now one of the interesting things that's coming through is this idea of the virtual ward mm. where I think that needs to be funded. Uh, those people want to be where they are and the system seems to work. Mm. So in terms of virtual wards and sending the money to the councils first so we can unlock your beds. That doesn't seem to be what's happening and we desperately need it. Thank you. And next to you. Hi, I'm Christina Mellem and I'm the Chief Executive of the National Association of Link Workers. So my um, observation and my question is, do we need to move to a biopsychosocial model of care? Since we can clearly see that a biomedical model isn't clearly working, can we really separate the uh, medical determinants from the non-medical determinant? And is there a culture work going on? Because, I mean, we've got social prescribing, which is a national policy initiative, and yet we're talking about health inequalities, like there is no workforce doing something about it. So should we be sharing some positive news and trying to hold the government to account on some of the initiatives that they have around workforce. And when you talk about workforce, are you also talking about the non-clinical workforce? Thank you. Uh, and then to this gentleman at the front here. Hi, um, I'm Wilf Wheeler from the UK Commission on Bereavement. Um, thanks for all of your comments. They're really, really interesting um, and insightful kind of to hear. Uh, I was wondering how you see um, 
the amount of money that the UK spends on healthcare by comparison to other countries, how we measure up in that way, and what we get for our spend. Great, thank you. Marco, I might um, come to you first, I suppose, particularly on the um, kind of approach to, to discharge, given that you're interested in adult social care and obviously the, the 500 million that was included in our plan for patients. Yeah, so um, uh, as a former councillor of 20 years, as I mentioned earlier, uh, I, I want to put a bit of a shout out there for uh, those of you in here who are perhaps councillors or involved with your local council, because I think you do a fantastic job. And I think it would be entirely wrong to actually think about the um, plug in the bath, if you like, being the, the and, and it being uh, health and social care not being uh, uh, sorry the social care element not being ready to receive <coughs> people back in the community. I've seen many many instances. I've been a non-executive director of two trust boards in which patients are overstaying in hospitals because pharmacy hasn't spoken to the consultant. And it's taken days, if not weeks, for patients to actually have their plan prepared for from within the hospital. And actually there are places, there have been places, into which uh, to discharge. Um, so to, to, to sort of portray the image that actually it's social care that's causing the problem of, 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 of of patient flow through the hospital would not be an accurate uh, uh, portrayal of, of the situation. Um, I mentioned earlier that I'm very, very uh, warm, if no, I'm very excited actually, uh, about our move to looking at a more holistic approach at the human persona, uh, and, I, and I wanted to pick up on your comments as well. I, I, I absolutely think that when we talk about workforce, it should be every one of us it should be all of us. We shouldn't be just talking about an NHS work plan. We should be planning for our own futures in so many different ways that involves our own, our own family members, our own uh, uh, local community, our, our local, uh, you know, the third sector, um, and of course local government. So having the government started to make some of these moves when in 2012, it came out with the Health and Social Care Act and prescribed the initiation in local government of the health and well-being boards. Um, I think that um, the move was the correct one, but we were very much uh, in a sort of lottery-type scenario in which, because like any other local government committee, that committee only functions as well as predominantly the chairman is engaged with it, and other elected members and stakeholders. And in terms of driving the agenda forward, you need, that, you need that energy and determination and knowledge and background to want to make those changes. And had those health and wellbeing boards functioned, and they have commissioning functions, by the way, I bet nobody in this room knows that. Health and wellbeing boards can commission if they want to, but I'll bet there isn't a, as many as five in the country that actually carry out a commissioning role uh, um, uh, of local government into their communities. Had we actually started to make that model work, we would now be much further ahead of the curve in terms of how we are looking at uh, integrated the, the ICSs working. Uh, so it's ICSs, as you know, is about that integrated model between NHS and community. We need to absolutely make sure, though, that it isn't just the voice of the medical side of things and the NHS side of things that is present on those boards, we need to make sure that children and people and uh, social care, everybody's on there and, and saying their piece and making the whole health economy work, working better for all of us as individuals. Anita. Uh, um, uh, just just two things to, to pick out from that. One is the, the question on international uh, uh, comparisons. And I guess the, the headline here is if we look at pre-pandemic, UK spending as a share of GDP is very comparable to other advanced healthcare systems, slightly below, below uh, France and Germany, above some of the uh, southern uh, European countries. But when you convert that to pounds, to actual uh, spending power, it is below um, average, and we have fewer of the physical resources. We have lower doctors 
per head nurses, per head beds, per head scanners, per head. And a part of that story is the growth story, yeah? <coughs> so over the last 15 years, GDP per head in Germany has risen by 20%. GDP per head in France has, driven, has risen by 10%. And here it's been basically stagnant, yeah? And so whilst we're prioritising healthcare in line with other countries, actually if you haven't got economic growth, it just doesn't translate into the, 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 the buying power for the actual real resources that deliver the high quality care. And this is a really serious issue over the next decade because the next decade is a decade in which the ageing of the population um, really does uh, uh, motor. And so by 2030, 31, we'll have a third more over 85s and um, the number of people in the last year of their life will be increased by a fifth. And I think that lends weight to the, the issue, Bernie, that you were raising about not just for this winter, but actually generally, mainly actually for people rather than for money. We need to get this model of how we care for older people and how we care for people at end of life right. And that should be a lot more based in the community. Social care mm. is a big part of that, but NHS services have a really important role to play as well. And this brings us back then, what will stop us doing that, again, is probably the workforce. So domiciliary care, you know, care which comes into your home in social care at the moment, I think people would love to provide that, but they cannot get the workers. Yeah, so, <clears throat> so we know what the right thing is to do, yeah, but if we're not doing that investment in the workforce across NHS and social care, we're forced to spend our pound in a way which is not in the interest of patients, not in the interest of staff and not in the interest of taxpayers. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> and the Secretary of State, the Deputy Prime Minister, chose to um, make that investment in the what's called the discharge to assess scheme. So this, rather than having a delay where we we argue and we try and establish whether a transfer is um, uh, care is is funded or <coughs> who will fund it, actually the person can be moved into a social care setting and the care funded. Now we've got to get better at making sure that the that kind of investment is actually an investment that's managed across local authorities in the health service. And, and, and we absolutely accept that that has to get better as we go forward. But the investment was because it will make a difference. Are there things the NHS can do more efficiently in terms of managing its process for transferring care? Yes, absolutely. Um, again, um, some of our, our lack of technology um, slows us down in terms of some of those processes. But that investment will make a massive difference this winter. And the challenge then is to sustain it for the longer term and to actually use it as the bedrock for a much more profound plan um, around social care, which is developed with social care providers, with our communities and led by our colleagues in local authorities, absolutely. I think the points about models of care are really well made. And again, there are no, um, there are no magic bullets here, but we do need to have a set of approaches which doesn't just rely on what we do in hospitals or in mental health services or in our uh, community and primary care services, but actually take a much more holistic view of our communities and actually a much more holistic view of other public services as well. We know that access to good quality housing makes a profound difference um, to people's health and wellbeing. We know that access to good quality social care, I mean, particularly for our elders, makes a profound difference to their health and wellbeing. We know that access to education and to op good opportunities makes a profound difference in lots of communities. So, again, for us, that speaks to the white paper that was being developed two secretaries of state ago. And actually, that did commit the government to taking a much longer term and a much more rounded view of all of the factors, as you've rightly said, that impact upon people's health. And we do hope that this new prime minister, this new administration, um, even if they're stopping and looking at that, they can see the opportunity for the longer term, mm. both to mitigate demand upon um, health services, but actually to invest in the kind of um, health and wealth of the population for the longer term. Thank you. I'm going to take uh, another round of uh, questions. Uh, I'm going to take this lady here first. My name's Andrea, and I started my nurse training in the 60s. My question to you is why are you wasting swathes and swathes of nursing potential because they have to have degrees, when in my day we used to go either from school 
or as, as I did as an older person, and we had four weeks in school, and then we were on the wards learning practically. And sister was gone. And believe me, the standard of nursing was spot on. And I want to know why you were wasting this potential, <coughs> making people go for degrees. And also, French nurses don't have degrees. German nurses don't have degrees. So why do we import them and yet make our nurses have degrees? Thank you. Uh, we'll go to this lady here next. And then to this gentleman here. Thanks. Uh, uh, I'm Sophie Corlett. I'm from Mind, a mental health charity. It's a question um, really about when looking at priorities and the fact that mental health seems to have been deprioritized mm -hmm. recently. So the, the money for um, uh, re recovery post-COVID and uh, uh, for supporting people uh, to move mm -hmm. out of hospital back into society, all of that money has only gone into the acute system, not into the mental health system, although the problems are exactly the same in mental health. And we know that mental health is so crucial to growth. So it's one of the reasons that people retire early is, is stress. Uh, you know, people post-pandemic who are leaving, the, one of the key things that they're mentioning is stress. One of the key reasons that people fall out of the workforce uh, during their working age is around mental health. And yet, people are waiting to get mental health support, and particularly. Can I ask you to bring it to a question. Yeah. Well, it's the question was right at the beginning. You know, where does mental health fit in that priority? Because it seems to me that it it's a very key area to support growth, and particularly for young people who, at the moment, are rating obscene amounts of time for support. And we know that that then ingrains problems for them for the long term, which, from a growth point of view, doesn't seem to make sense. So. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thomas Reynolds from the MDU, the Medical Defence Union. Very quick question. Currently, the NHS is forecast to spend £125 billion on clinical negligence costs over the next, say, 10 years. Marco, in the context of the numbers you were outlining, they are obviously astounding. And I wanted to know, does the panel think addressing that should be a priority for the government? But the second part of the question is, this isn't a new issue. It's been around for some time, so clearly the issue is a thorny one. Is it time to grasp it and just do something about that? Thank you. Perfect. Thank you. I'm going to go in uh, reverse order this time. So, uh, Danny, I'm going to come to you first. Um, <clears throat> yes, absolutely. Um, mental health needs to remain a priority. I think, uh, again, um, a couple of prime ministers ago, I think, I think there was some success in terms of mental health being much more clearly a focus in terms of setting um, priorities for the longer term. Uh, for the NHS. I think if you look at the work that you see going on within the 42 integrated care systems, mental health and the mental health of the populations they serve is, is a real priority. But, but we do need to make sure that interventions that are made are looking across all types of services, not just acute services and, and the pressures on them that winter. So the point is really well made. Um, we moved um, to introduce degrees um, um, for nursing about, about a decade or more ago. And there are a whole set of factors that are at, that are at play. I mean, I, I, I think it was a long overdue step, Andrea. Um, I think we saw uh, degrees uh, becoming a commonplace qualification for lots of other professions. And nursing is a profession, and it deserves uh, the same recognition, the same status, as Marco kind of referenced earlier, as all the other professions. Um, I think it's also the case that actually... Um, what we ask our nurses to do now um, is hugely complicated. The advances that we've seen in terms of the care that we can provide patients, the, the technology that we use, the, the care we provide people uh, in their own homes and in the communities has transformed in the 30-odd years that I've worked in the, in the health service. And I do think um, degree qualification um, is the appropriate way of both recognising what those colleagues do but also making sure that they're prepared to do it. I do accept that we have to get better, and the government have been supportive of this in recent years, of actually using other routes to helping um, young people and people at various other stages of their lives get degrees. The growth of degree apprenticeships in the last few years has been profoundly important for us. It makes us far less reliant on the kind of university-based uh, model uh, that I think Andrea was perhaps um, critiquing um, there. That's been something of a temporary solution from the government. Longer term, we need to see a reform of apprenticeship policy to allow us to really grow grow that kind of entry route into, into nursing. 
I understand the points about medical negligence and about the, the relative uh, costs. I understand the particular interest your, your organisation and, and um, those that subscribe to your organisation have. We do need to have a look at it. Of course, there is also something that is at the heart of this, which is that actually um, the NHS has to have safer systems of work to prevent the kind of incidents that, that lead um, patients and their families um, taking action against us. We have a particular set of challenges um, in maternity services, which are our, our highest cost area in terms of medical negligence. And whilst there are workforce dimensions to that, there are also dimensions to that that are about our culture and our ways of working and our practices. And um, you know, there are a series of reviews that have been commissioned by the government, and they are challenging us to do better. And so this isn't, I, I think for us in the health service, actually we, we know there are things we need to do differently and better for our patients. And that's perhaps a more effective place to start than the, the legislation around negligence. So, um, um, just, just to emphasise the um, potential value of apprenticeships and, um, and the um, routes through from nursing associates. But I think, so <clears throat> there's a lot of evidence, you know, so, so we have nursing shortage overall in the country, but we also have <clears throat> particular shortages in certain sectors of nursing, community, mental, mental health has been, been, been challenging as well, primary care, <clears throat> and, and we have uh, shortages in certain uh, geographies. And one of the things that's the most effective way to deal with that is, is for people to, to, <clears throat> to, to get people from those communities to train because people tend to stay where they're trained and if they're from the local community. So, so you get two, two benefits, don't you? You, you, you get a more stable uh, workforce, you get a workforce that understands the community and when you're dealing with people long-term conditions, that's happening in a community context. And also, that means NHS pound is, is, is being spent to, to, in that community as well. And that, that, that can help there. Um, What's important about those models, I think, and what we've gone for, is to say um, the standards, the level of training we're now going to give our nurses isn't going to change. That, that has to be re really, really high. And it has to be really, really high because there's actually really good research evidence that if you have high-skilled nurses in the right numbers, actually fewer people die. Yeah, so it, it, it is, you know, it, it improves um, outcomes. And there's very good new research from colleagues at IFS and, and, and others that shows uh, uh, that. But the, the, the way you get to that standard needs to be much more diverse. And we need to make sure that people with a wider range of, of, of experience of life um, can come in to nursing because they add something really, uh, yeah. re really, really important. Yeah. And um, <clears throat> I... I, I I bang on about apprenticeships a lot. You know, I, 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 th I think it is shameful that, that for a mix of, of national policy reasons, we've not been able to expand apprenticeships at anywhere near the rate that I would like to see because I think it should be a much bigger part of, of, of the training in. And I don't understand why they won't change the rules to make that happen <clears throat> because it seems in everybody's interest. Yeah. Thank you. Marco. Well, I really want to support and echo exactly what you've just said. I'm, mm. I'm, I, I, I completely agree with you. And, 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 and actually, I agree with you as well. Um, so I, I have a lot of sympathy with your argument, because I don't think we should be having a prescriptive model that says you must be uh, uh, to degree standard. I think that the apprenticeship model allows people to join a training program, a pathway that they can take at their own pace. And if they then um, decide that they do not want to take that any further up to degree level, well then it clearly more perhaps it defines their career path within those um, parameters. So, sorry. Basic nursing has not changed in 50 years. The basic care is identical. And this is why we're wasting lots of people. Not everybody yeah. has to go into brain surgery. Yeah. Uh, you know? Yes, I, I, I want to <coughs> agree with you completely, but also absolutely completely support the whole um, agenda for change through much more training. And actually, nursing is only one of those areas that we should be thinking about training. We should be thinking about training even, even our consultants. You know, there is a reason why a consultant doing exactly the same job in Spain is being paid £65,000 and a reason why, notwithstanding our medical and claims, a consultant in um, 
in the United Kingdom receive something like £95,000. And that is a, a, actually our supply and demand issue. I think if we had a lot more consultants uh, trained up, then I think we would uh, have a look at those salaries and say, well, they don't have to be as high as, as they are. So um, picking up the point, if I could just switch rather brutally to the mental health uh, conversation, I completely understand what you're saying. Um, I, I perhaps, perhaps not quite worded the way you said where the government is deprioritizing, because I really don't think that that's the government position. The government has, uh, in the last few years, absolutely wanted to prioritize mental health, and I've seen that for myself. I, I have a sort of a scrutiny role in my uh, um, uh, role as a politician, so I'd be the first to shout about it. I've been a non-executive board member of a mental health trust, and when I was mayor of a town, my charity was a very small mental health institution, and I'm a big supporter of MHFA, and I'm a first aider. So if I thought what you were saying was completely accurate, I'd be one of the people <coughs> saying and challenging government on that particular position. Have things changed in the last couple of years because of COVID? What COVID has done is actually highlight where we need to be uh, with mental health services, and not just as an NHS function, but from, again, within the community uh, and the third sector joining in, and, uh, but um, looking at different models of how we might support people with mental health needs, whatever their age uh, may be. And finally, I think on your point, um, I was outstanding when you uh, mentioned that number. I, I wasn't aware it was that. But is that a yearly figure, or is that? No. That's their forecast for future liabilities. Oh, I see. Okay, that's not a year. Right. Okay. Okay. I nearly fell over when you said that. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Um, so, so, yes, but it's something I want to uh, have a look at now that you've sparked my uh, uh, interest in that. But, but, but thank you all for your contributions, because I, I actually have to... Thank you, yes, I, I know you have to run, and we don't have time for another round of questions, but I might just ask one more question of uh, Anita and, and Danny, if you have to run. Obviously, we've got the medium-term fiscal plan, which had been scheduled for the 23rd of November, though there are reports that's going to be brought forward to this month. If you had one ask of the, the health secretary uh, ahead of that, what, what would that be? Obviously, it's a treasury event, but if you, if you could influence the government to have one health and care-related thing in the fiscal plan, what would it be? Thank you very much, Thank you. Um, so if I was only allowed one thing to do, um, uh, which is very hard because health and care doesn't, <laughs> isn't amenable to silver bullets, um, you would have to say, given where we come from, that you would prioritise investment in the core social care system um, if you only had one thing to do. But then you'd have to be incredibly honest that people are going to have to wait a heck of a lot longer for care, uh, uh, both for elective uh, uh, and, and, and for emergency. What, <clears throat> what there mustn't be, and I guess that, that points to it, is magical thinking that says somehow... Yeah, there, we, we, we can have the health service we want without paying for it. We need to drive out efficiency, but you know, the healthcare is a people uh, business. <clears throat> it can't have good healthcare without enough doctors and nurses <clears throat> and support staff, and it costs money to pay them. Danny, without magical thinking uh, or looking for silver bullets or, or unicorns, what would be your big ask of the government ahead of that event? Social care and, and specifically to introduce a, a minimum wage for care workers. Um, ten years ago, um, care workers used to earn about 10% above the average in retail. They now earn about 10% less than the average in retail. And I think Marco's point about status and value for those roles was really important. Uh, my colleagues in social care have a workforce which is about 80% um, uh, care assistants, care workers, domiciliary workers in the health service. We, we have a 50% kind of degree qualified workforce. That would make a profound difference to social care. It would, it would boost recruitment, it would boost status, and it would be a massive, um, a massive kind of intervention for the longer term. It would need to be, and Bernie's left, but you know, that would need to be funded and the money would need to be distributed through local authorities in particular. But that would make a massive difference. Thank you. Uh, so with that, I'm going to bring the event to a close. Uh, thank you to our panellists for uh, a brilliant discussion, to the Health Foundation for partnering with us uh, on this event, uh, to all those who've attended in person or listened back later. 
uh, our next event. Uh, we actually have three more events uh, left today, uh, including one at 3.30 over here on how can the better use of data benefit public services and all the details uh, in that. Uh, and finally, just to flag, uh, keep an eye out for the Institute for Government's Performance Tracker, which is our data-driven analysis of key public services, including hospitals, general practice and adult social care, uh, which will be out later this month, though possibly a bit earlier this month uh, than uh, previously uh, planned. Uh, so until then, uh, thank you very much and goodbye. <laughs>